Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. This week we will be looking at issue number 488, April the 2nd, 1994, £1.40. I worked out that this is uh, episode number 13 of the podcast. I can't believe that I've got to 13 episodes of doing this. Uh, I mean, the plan always was to try and do this for as long as possible, but 13 feels like quite a, quite a large number, big number, significant number, I don't know. Significant within metal, I guess, because it's a bit evil. <laughs> it's, it's not really that evil, it's just a number between 12 and 14. But what I found doing this pod is that I've definitely, definitely discovered some records that I otherwise would have just passed passed off in my life and just, you know, carried on. I mean, one that comes to mind immediately is Grave Dancers Union by Soul Asylum. I mean, I always knew the song uh, Runaway Train, which I always loved, always thought it was brilliant. But I never actually listened to the album and I, 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 I took a punt on it the other week. Uh, actually, no, a few weeks ago now. I love that record. It's incredible. It's just so like mid nineties, not really grungy, just sort of like alt rock, like in like Jim Blossom's uh, Goo Goo Dolls, Dolls kind of stuff. I love it. Absolutely brilliant. Also, another record that I never ever thought that I would listen to or have any interest in was Brave by Marillion. Now, I, I don't want to stereotype Marillion fans because you know, there's probably a few of you out there, but in my head, holding onto this stereotype, I always just thought of Marillion fans as as men with beer bellies that wear cowboy hats that sit at the bar drinking real ale. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know why. That's just always been the stereotype I've had. I feel like I've probably been to gigs where people have been wearing Mar- Marillion shirts and have been doing that. But I'll tell you what, that album is fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, can't believe it. Genuinely can't believe how good it is. Um, so, if anyone out there, there's a Meridian fan that has a Meridian shirt, owns a cowboy hat, that wants to share a pint, not share a pint, buy me a pint of Spitfire, a warm Spitfire by a bar, very, very happy to take you up on that offer. Anyway, if you want to get in contact with us here, you can contact us through email, which is karangbackissues at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at karangpod, and we are also on Instagram, where we can be found at karangbackissues. The cover stars for this week are Little Angels, and Karang says, Get in the ring, Little Angels, fighting to survive. Also, Pearl Jam vs Soundgarden, UK Summer Showdown, win an exclusive Wild Heart jacket, and... Metallica set to share the stage at Mega Metal Woodstock Bash with Guns N' Roses. Starting this week with Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first, and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden have emerged strong contenders to land premier positions at this year's Reading Festival. Both bands have understood to have been approached to play, and Pearl Jam in particular look likely to secure a headline slot on one of the three nights. Pearl Jam did not uh, play Reading in 94, but Soundgarden did. Pearl Jam actually didn't come to the UK in 1994 at all, which is uh, obviously a bit of a shame. Pearl Jam can be heard live in concert on Radio 1 on Easter Monday, April the 4th at 1.45am. The show will be broadcast unedited and as it happens, direct from St. Louis Fox Theatre and is scheduled to last a mammoth two hours plus encores. Edited highlights will be broadcast later in the evening session. I believe... My mum is, well, she is probably a bigger Pearl Jam fan than I am. I think she stayed up 
all night and recorded that on tape off of the radio, which obviously makes her quite a cool mother. Anyway, Soundgarden, meanwhile, are currently celebrating news that their new album, Super Unknown, has entered the US album charts at number one. It is a phenomenal success story for Chris Cornell and Co, whose last album, Bad Motor Finger, barely made the top 20. March has been a phenomenal month for metal and the new Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral, filling in behind Soundgarden for the number two slot in the US charts and Pantera's new album, Far Beyond Driven, looking set to take the album a number one spot in the UK album's charts as Kerrang went to press. Pride and Glory, the new band put together by former Ozzy Osbourne guitarist Zach Wilde, will open this year's Castle Donington Monsters of Rock Festival. Their addition to the bill will be a Donington first, marking the only time ever that a band has been confirmed to play the mega metal event before the public has ever heard them. Pride and Glory's debut album is slated for a summer release. Stop Press and Robert Plant and Jimmy Page are understood to be working with drummer Michael Lee and bassist Charlie Jones, both members of Plant's current band, on new material. Karankin revealed that the four were locked away in a London studio at the beginning of March and are said to have written 12 songs. Writing is now reported to have resumed and it seems the quartet have enough new material for an album. The Polygram organisation is said to be interested. The Gibson Guitar Centenary Celebrations, for which Led Zeppelin are rumoured to be considering a reformation, is still to take place at Wembley Arena. Despite some confusion at the Wembley box office, ticket sales have now been put back to April the 16th. Prong, the acclaimed New York metal combo, looks set to hit the UK in June for their first shows on these shores in two years. More news soon. Napalm Death released their fifth album, Fear, Emptiness, Despair, through Earache on May the 2nd. Fear, Emptiness, Despair, which was originally set to be titled Underall, sees the trademark Napalm Death Blitzkrieg controlled somewhat, though never at the expense of the ripping intensity that they are famous for. It's their third album with football crazy growler Mark Barney Greenway and their second with drummer Danny Herrera. Embry is the sole remaining member from the Napalm Death lineup, which appeared on the groundbreaking ear splitting Scum debut. Propane, the crushing New York political hardcore merchants have just begun recording their second album, The Truth Hurts. Working with producer Alec Perales, the band are currently holed up in New York City's Pyramid Studios. 1994 has already been tipped as the year of hardcore, and indeed Propane enjoyed a tremendous response at January's one-off UK date with Life of Agony. But does it worry the band that their growing popularity could be pinned on something as flimsy as a trend? I think it's always been like that muses propane bassist vocalist Gary Meskill, formerly of the Crumb Suckers. If there's one thing that I made a mental note of way back in the early days of being in the hardcore scene, it was to stay an individual, because the scene's so trendy sometimes, it's sickening. This whole Seattle thing was a little scary because it took a brand of music which was considered real underground, that had real underground values and then materialised it. Surely though it's good that some of the giants of the scene are trying to help out lesser known bands. Yeah, agrees Gary. The big bands are trying to help out the smaller Seattle acts and punk bands, which is cool. I think it opened up the new generation to a lot of important current events. Mid-80s metal, that's gone. Thank God. And people are talking about politics and important things. Despite their strong political views, Propane are quick to defend themselves against allegations of racism. Meskill considers the misunderstanding of their track Arachnophobia. I've read a lot of different reviews where arachnophobia has been taken every way. I mean, the military element that shows up to our shows take it as a pro-military song, when it's really an anti-war song. My whole idea behind the song is that uh, when I experienced the Gulf War through the media, I felt the tide start to change really fast. That was all done through the media, and the song's about the media's power to scare the American public into a pro-war campaign. I'm 100% anti-war, and I always have been. Biohazard, the New York Hardcore Kings, have just completed work on their third album, State of the World Address. 
Set for a May 2nd release through new label Warner Brothers, the LP was recorded and mixed at AM Studios in Hollywood with producer Ed Stasium. Every song on the album is from our hearts, says singer bassist Evan Seinfeld. They're literal and metaphoric, like a painting. You get out, out of it your own interpretation. Biohazard are daring to broach subjects many bands refuse to acknowledge in a politically correct environment, such as the honour and pride due American servicemen who fought for their country. We're watching the world crumble around us, continues Seinfeld. Drugs, gangs, destroying neighbourhoods, just the realities of life that get ignored by news, media, TV and a lot of albums. The whole concept of state is just how fucked up we view the world through our eyes. Our first album was sheltered in terms of focusing on Brooklyn, our own neighbourhood, but since then we've travelled a lot and our horizons have broadened. The things we're writing about aren't just neighbourhood issues. State of the World Address has several guests providing backing vocals on a number of tracks. How It Is features pro-pop rapper Cypress Hill, while L7's Jennifer Finch can be heard on Pride. On the last day of recording, 50 of Biohazard's newest friends crammed into the studio to record a mob backing vocal for Tales from the Hard Side. Some of the mob was made up of local LA bands including members of 247 Spies, Fudge Factory and Lit. Biohazard have also recorded a track for inclusion on the much-anticipated forthcoming Black Sabbath tribute album. They put down After Forever, which originally appeared on the 1971 classic Master of Reality. Record releases and Headswim, the acclaimed London metal starlets, are currently in Wales's Rockfield Studios where both Sepultura's Chaos AD and Curb Dog's eponymous debut were recorded, are working on their first LP. The album is projected for a summer release, but in the meantime, Headswim play their first headline date of the year at London Camden Underworld on April the 14th. MTA have just finished work on a new album, which is scheduled for release in late May. The band can be seen live, meanwhile, at London Old Kent Road Thomas A. Beckett Abyss Club on April 21st. Superchunk, the North Carolina punk quartet, release a new LP, Foolish, through City Slang on April 25th. The album, uh, which was recorded at Minnesota's Pachyderm Studios, features the likes of the first part, Why Do You Have to Put a Date on Everything, and Driveway to Driveway. Tour News and Iron Maiden have quashed rumours reported on national radio that they are to break in new singer Blaze Bailey with a one-off date at Dartmoor Prison. Speculation arose from reports that Maiden drummer Nico McBrain is planning to jam with the prison's rock band on National Music Day, June 25th and June 26th. This may still happen depending on Maiden's schedule, but Nico will definitely not be joined by his bandmates. Iron Maiden are currently writing new material for their 10th studio LP, but will only begin recording as soon as they are happy they have something fucking brilliant to put down. Hard Rock has returned to Bedford Esquires with a new metal night every Thursday. Admission is £2. Live bands have been added on a trial basis to a new rock night at Bristol Stokes Croft Full Moon Eclipse Pub. Coming soon are Strange Creations, April 2nd, Sirius, 16th, Babyface, May 7th, Core, 14th, Tap and Tea, 28th. Admission costs £1. The John Ball Pub in Chiswick, London is offering Kerrang! readers free entry to its weekly Tuesday rock night. The first 100 people clutching the current edition of the Big K will be admitted free during April. Ash, the youthful Irish punk trio, play the following gigs. Hastings Crypt, April 1st. Oxford Venue, 2nd. Camden Falcon, 5th. Uh, Islington Powerhouse, 6th. London Halsden Mean Fiddler, 7th. Southampton Joiners Arms on the 8th. And Meat Machine, the industrial noise terrorists, play London Limelight on March 31st. Coast 
to coast, the hottest US news as it happens, and this week we are with Don Kay in New York. The last few weeks have brought a swirl of big bands traipsing through New York City on various missions, but the bars have been relatively quiet, with virtually no celebs lurking about. Mind you, this could probably be blamed on the fact that the sky has continued to drop tons of snow in our direction, effectively turning a trip to the pub into an arctic adventure. That didn't stop Kiss from hitting town, meeting record company execs, doing interviews and stomping through snow-clogged streets. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons were situated at the Riga Royal Hotel to discuss Kiss My Ass, the forthcoming Kiss tribute LP to be released in June through Phonogram. Now then, there's a bit of controversy over this one. Apparently, Stone Temple Pilots were to contribute watching you, but Atlantic Records axed it because there were already several of their bands on the label. STP's Dean DeLeo told reporters at the recent Grammy Awards that he was a bit miffed, but that he also hoped Watching You might surface somewhere else, perhaps as a B-side after the pilot's second album comes out in the summer. Kiss My Ass is actually great fun to listen to, a bit self-serving on the part of the band perhaps who oversaw the whole thing, but as Gene said in typical Simmons fashion, why wait for someone else to throw a party when you can throw one yourself? Why indeed, Gene. Simmons and Stanley were not at the party for Rush, which was held after the Canuck Trio's two sold-out shows at Madison Square Garden. In fact, no one was there except higher echelon executives from their record company. The bash was held at one of the garden's private clubs and Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson and Neil Peart did make an appearance with an inside source telling that a groovy time was had by all. Not partying at all was Soundgarden, who slipped quietly into New York to shoot a new video for The Day I Tried to Live. The second single from the Masterful Super Unknown. The band also stayed at the Riga Royal the same time as Kiss and guitarist Kiss groupie Kim Tyle was seen frantically attempting to track down Gene Simmons' hotel room number. Following a peaceful dinner with A&M Brass, Kim, Matt Cameron, Chris Cornell and manager Susan Silver retired to Riga's bar where they wondered if bassist Ben Shepard was going to make it on the late flight. Airplanes have been skidding off runways like crazy in New York during the past few weeks. From New York, the band headed to England to begin their tour. Maryland upstarts Clutch played the limelight recently and seen parting away at the gig was none other than John Wayne Bobbitt, the guy who became an instant celeb when his wife snipped off his willy. Although John now has had his old fellow reattached, it's unclear whether everything's in proper working order. Perhaps that's why John was draped in four of the limelight's most luscious dancers in the VIP room, hoping, hoping something might uh, come up. There was nothing quite as scandalous happening when Sepultura, Fear Factory and Fudge Tunnel arrived at neighbouring Newark for a gig in Studio One. Although yours truly never travels to Newark, I have a decent car and want to keep it that way. I understand Fear Factory premiered two new songs and Brutal Truth singer Kevin Sharp joined them for their final number, Scapegoat. The tour also took in a venue called Toads in Connecticut right across from the famous Yale University. So the tour buses were greeted with an odd assortment of yuppies, preppies and white power skinheads, apparently the three major political groups in that area. The biggest question of this tour is, will Nailbomb play a set? This would be the perfect opportunity, what with both its creators, Max Cavalera and Alex Newport, on the road together. Plus there's speculation about a Brugeria gig when the tour hits LA. Only time will tell. Viva. <laughs> You've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! We now come on to concerts, and the first concert this week is Soul Asylum and The Meat Puppets live at the Glasgow Barrowlands on Saturday, March the 19th. This review is by Paul Travers, and it gets a high voltage out of 5, which is a 4 out of 5. I didn't catch all of The Meat Puppets, but from what I did see, they appear to be yet another group with a Beatles fixation and plenty of vocal harmonies. They're not as kitschy as Red Cross and not as grungy as The Posies, but lie somewhere in between. Worth catching, certainly, but not essential viewing. A couple of years ago, not many people would have listed Soul Asylum as essential viewing either. 
Just like about everyone else, I only latched onto the band with their seventh album, Grave Dancers Union, and more specifically, the monster single, Runaway Train. There is of course nothing wrong with that, and if I could afford to buy records by every single obscure American band I heard about, I'd have to be a good deal wealthier than I am right now. So Soul Asylum have the problem of balance. Wisely they play it safe and give us all but free from Grave Dancers Union. Homesick, The Sun Made and Growing Into You are the emissions. Old songs are scattered about the set the way most established bands scatter new ones and you can see the crowd check their bouncing when these older compositions are aired. It must be frustrating for both the band and their hardcore veteran fans but I'm on the side of the new recruits. Soul Asylum are more insidious than the media and the impact of unfamiliar material is very much reduced. Live they're somewhat less polished than you might expect. They retain a raw garage feel and any parallels with the likes of Bon Jovi uh, end with the na 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 na's and keep it up. Somebody to shove an April Fool both deliver full body blows while 99% is particularly brutal. Dave Perna, still the only recognisable face of the group however, much he argues to the contrary, leaps about the stage like a senseless thing. There's an energy here, a danger even, that you'd never guess from hearing Black Gold on Radio 1. Runaway Train gets the expected roar but there are more crowd pleasers to come. Are there any Scottish songs, Dave asks, seemingly a very odd question. When the cheering eventually fades, he's allowed to continue. Are there any Scottish songs that we might know? They play something I wouldn't admit to knowing in a hall full of pissed up Glaswegians. And then we get a very ropey version of the undertone's teenage kicks to prove that Soul Asylum are punks like everyone else. They leave the stage in a wash of feedback and Barrowland spills satisfied into the streets. I can see now why they once had Leatherface supporting them. This next review is for Widowmaker at the Grand New York on Wednesday, March the 9th. This review is by Stephen Blush and it gets a electrocution out of 5, which is a 5 out of 5. It wasn't so long ago that Twisted Sister vocalist Dee Schneider was on top of the world, as one of the biggest rock stars known to mankind. But over the course of a decade his metal has oxidised and he's now playing to a mere 200 loyal fans on a cold rainy Wednesday evening, fighting for survival and recognition and making the best of a bad situation. Thankfully the fire still burns for this 30-something blonde band boy, showing no signs of giving up the fight. Trim and muscular and screaming for vengeance, Snyder has simply never looked or sounded better. Performing material primarily culled from his sadly overlooked Widowmaker Blood and Bullets album, due out in the UK on Music for Nations on April the 11th, having been released in the US almost a year and a half ago, Dee's new crew tore through a blistering 45-minute set that left the rabid fans eating out of his veteran showman's big grimy hands. The band's self-titled theme song, their anti-rock biz opus, Reason to Kill, and a killer version of the Howling Wolf classic Evil all hit their mark. And when they kicked into old twisted headbanger anthems like I Wanna Rock and the finale You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, you'd have thought we were at one of those sold-out arenas where Sister used to tear the roof off. Back on the streets and out on his own, Snyder has returned to the sleazy clubs where he earned his mighty reputation, seemingly ages ago. Pissed off, completely disillusioned and more than a little confused with his sordid professional plight, Dee's not going to take it anymore. Now writing songs from that same well of despair which fueled his early slew of 80s street fighting anthems, this middle-aged icon knows what he wants and he just might know how to get it. If there's any justice in this world, Snyder will make a major comeback in the not too distant future. Fighting for the glory of metal a la Mana Warrior Joey DeMaio, this brazen lead Widowmaker man deserves a break, especially in this confused new age of punk wannabes and grunge rock losers. Run for your life. This next review is for Sensor, live at Preston University, Friday March the 18th. This review is by Paul Travers and it gets electrocution out of 5, which is a 5 out of 5. 
Anyone whose only experience of Senta is the new single Switch could be forgiven for wondering what a mag like Kerrang is doing infusing about them. Switch is actually a fine piece of music, though largely guitar free. It's also only one part of what Senta are about. Essentially, Senta are a metal band. Or are they a dunce troupe? Or a rap act? To tell the truth, it really doesn't matter. They've got a fucking huge bass sound and enough firepower to completely eclipse a, mod a dozen lump and plod rock bands. Frontman Haifam Al-Sayed stalks the stage like a less muscular Phil Anselmo with wobbly nipples and delivers some of the fiercest rap tirades you've probably never heard. The music veers off in all sorts of directions but never loses focus. There's a lot packed in, but it's fluid, not cluttered, and even when they turn into ambient spaceheads with head-fuck lights, they demand and keep your attention. The crowd is as diverse as you'd see at a Levelers or New Model Army gig. The Krusties seem to have taken to Sensor, and while I didn't see any Motley Crue t-shirts, there were a few banging heads and air-punching hands at the front. There's almost a feeling of family here, no doubt helped by Sensor's credos of tolerance and togetherness. It may sound syrupy, but Hypham is every inch the anti-star star. When he rants and hits out against the BMP, he doesn't sound po-faced like Rage Against the Machine, he just sounds like he cares. Don't see Sensor just because it's hip, but go and see them anyway. See them because they're worth it. This next review is for Sick of It All, live at the Wetlands, New York on Sunday, March the 6th. Review by Stephen Blush, and this gig gets a electrocution out of 5, which is a 5 out of 5. On a cold Sunday evening, the New York City faithful turned out en masse to see New York's largest lasting punk troupe perform an intimate club gig. Packed and oversold, with over 500 gnarly knuckleheads in attendance, the highbrow hippies who run this smoke-free venue shudder in fear as the slam-dancing masses turn the original home of Blues Traveller and the Spin Doctors into a virtual house of pain. For the uninitiated, this show was not a pretty sight, but for those in the know, it simply doesn't get any better. Led by the sibling tandem of frontman Lou Collar and his brother Pete on guitar, and fueled by the mighty rhythm section of drummer Armand and ex-agnostic front bassist Craig, Sick of It All ran through an hour-long hour mega set of pure punk for rowdy people, with an infectious minor threat Cro-Mags assault which must be experienced to be believed. Working through an acrimonious barrage of new material in anticipation of the recording of their major label debut album later this year, this quintessential quartet killed with power from start to finish. Simply put, if their new songs are any indication of six delicious direction, then put me in sickbay because these dudes are destined for greatness in the years to come. After setting the house afire with their blazing encore, a searing version of the Sick of It All mosh anthem in Justice System, the sweaty masses poured onto the streets of this urban jungle, satisfied with the physical release caused by this visceral performance. Lean and mean, the collar crew stick to what they do best, performing traditional American hardcore, devoid of pomp or circumstance. Strip throat vocals, crunch laden axe aesthetics and rock hard rhythms, these guys make punk the way it ought to be. Get off your ass and check out Sick of It All. You won't be disappointed. The final live review this week is for Green Day at the Irving Plaza, New York um, on Thursday, March the 17th, reviewed again by Stephen Blush. And this review gets a high voltage out of five, which is a four out of five. Twas a beautiful St. Paddy's Day Eve and New York's drunken punk masses, many of whom were clad in celebratory Celtic green, were treated to a glowing performance by suburban Bay Area hardcore upstarts Green Day. Darling to the snotty indie rock clique, Sex Pistols-esque racketeurs to the MTV weaned grunge legions. This burgeoning bombast brigade proved to all in attendance that every once in a, a while you can believe the hype. 
performing furious material primarily culled from their killer new Warner Bros debut studio opus, Dookie. These pedigree punkers who made major underground waves as a support act on Bad Religion's Recipe for Hate Tour were primal and passionate from start to finish, blending the pop-punk harmonies of Buzzcocks or early descendants with modern politically incorrect rancor. Vocalist, guitarist and crew unleashed one of the most memorable, mosh-intensive affairs in recent memory. Highlighted by the physical response from the frenetic gallery during Burnout, Welcome to Paradise and the fiery new single Longview. These guys are simply one of the tightest and best three-piece live rock bands around. If tonight's performance was any indication, the future looks bright for Green Day. Focused and furious, irreverent and urgent, they're pop purveyors of fun music in this new lame age of faux hard-asses and rap metal losers. With expansive corporate coffers behind them and unending open roads ahead of them, these hard-working cart hogs are just now getting on that steep entrance ramp to the fame and fortune line highway to hell. Needless to say, their path will be paved with green. We now come to a piece called The Greatest Show on Earth, Metallica and Guns N' Roses. I think uh, at the end of last week's um, issue, I mentioned about... Uh, there was a picture of Metallica and Guns N' Roses coming in next week's issue, and I thought it was about them touring together, but obviously I'm an idiot, and they toured together in 92, and it was talking about Woodstock. Anyway... Woodstock 2 is currently in the planning stages. The larger-than-life US festival is set to take place over two days, August 13th and 14th, at one of two sites, which are currently vying to stage the most monumental rock event of 1994. The first site is in Sagatees, a small town about 100 miles north of New York City. The other is in the town of Bethel, which is close to the site of the original festival in the Catskill, New York area. If the Sagatees site secures the festival, it will have the right to use the Woodstock name and will expect as many as 250,000 people to camp at a many-acred farm site. Meanwhile, the rival bidders have managed to secure the actual site of the original festival, which is roughly 50 miles from Sagatees. The Bethel Festival could accommodate 80,000 people, but it must settle for the name Bethel 1994. In what is sure to develop into one of the summer's most intriguing tour tussles, only preliminary permission for each festival has been given and there are still many matters left to be evaluated. Although details are sketchy at this time, it does appear that Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Pearl Jam U2, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana and more have all been approached to perform one hour sets in a non-headliner capacity as simply uh, as part of a big show. Speaking exclusively to Kerrang, Guns N' Roses manager Doug Goldstein has confirmed the following details. The producer of the show is John Scher, a major New York promoter with Metropolitan Entertainment. It's a two-day affair on Saturday and Sunday, August the 13th and 14th. Presently, we, Guns N' Roses, are scheduled to play on Sunday evening. I know that Metallica's confirmed now. I've heard that Peter Gabriel, the Chili Peppers, Aerosmith and Alice in Chains have also been confirmed. We're into it for the sentiment of the original Woodstock. If it's a gathering of different musical styles that can bring people together, who wouldn't normally, uh, who wouldn't normally be exposed to those different styles? Then it sounds like a blast. You can't recapture that particular moment, of course, so it's much more about the attitude and the environment of getting together different styles. Plus, it sounds like a historic event, and I think you'd want to be involved in something that would have a place in history. But I must say that my understanding currently is that it's still very much at the officer out stage. I know that they desperately like Pearl Jam to play, and Axel would like to see them play too. They're the band that most people in the world would like to see, and I know that that one's, uh, and I know that's the one Axel's particularly excited about. We hope we can play on the same day as them, or at least come and see their show. Regarding headliner status, Goldstein comments, 
I believe that everybody's playing equal length sets, although I can't confirm that at this time. I know they've gone after a certain amount of headline status acts, but it's really all about leaving your egos at the front door. Wherever they tell us we're going to play in the set, we'll play there. With such an open-minded attitude emanating from the guns camp, hopefully this should avoid any of the niggling nastiness that plagued the aftermath of their groundbreaking US Arena tour with Metallica in 92. Since then, both bands have taken pot shots at each other, which the press have relished in magnifying. As pointed out by Goldstein, no egos this time around have been shelved. With the event at such an early stage and US industry insiders playing cat and mouse about the affair, it's safe to say that anything could happen. There's already been talk of the possibility of an album and video made for posterity, much in the mould of the 69 album. This, like the bill itself, is far from confirmed. Rest assured, Kerrang will bring you details on the monstrously metallic affair when we get them. Woodstock Warrior What was it like being at Woodstock in 69? Chris Watts tracks down a man who was there. Joel Cassera was working for a New York brokerage firm until he went to the Woodstock Festival. The company fired him for taking the time off. Joel was one of only 60,000 people who actually bought a three-day ticket for $45. The majority, over 440,000, simply walked onto the site for free. Eventually, the festival organisers sued the New York District Attorney's Office and managed to refund those who had paid for a ticket. So, Joel drove upstate to Bethel. He had to park approximately 12 miles from the actual site, which on Friday afternoon was still being completed. Joel compares it to driving up the M1 to Castle Donington, only to find that the motorway has become an unofficial car park, sprawling across both lanes for 12 miles. He'd bought sandwiches but gave them away. He slept in his car for two nights and ran out of petrol. Today Joel works in Steve Sound's record shop in London's West End. It was a hassle, he says, but it really didn't matter. It was the perfect communal lifestyle. Everyone worked for everyone else. If you had a joint, you took a drag and passed it on. You'd never see it again, but someone would pass you theirs. You took a bite of an apple and passed it on. A few minutes later, someone would pass you a melon. The whole thing just worked. The organisers were even making announcements over the Tannos to warn people about buying acid from certain dealers. No one really knew what to expect before getting there. It happened when you got there. Okay, so there was no food and no toilets, but no one gave a shit. You went behind the tree. It pissed with rain. Okay, but people were dancing in the mud. It really was a small city coming together as one and helping each other out. Can it happen again? Should it? No. It won't work as well as it did in the 60s, he says. People are different. How many times have you been to Donington and there's some schmuck in front of you who ruins the whole day? People are more selfish today, more individualistic. It needs a cross-blend of band bands to make it work. It needs some of the older bands who were relevant then, as well as the newer bands like Guns N' Roses. That way it could be a reunion for the older people as well as a good festival for the young. The weekend really was the weekend, if you know what I mean. It has to be in Woodstock, otherwise it wouldn't be Woodstock again. That would be like having Donington in Wales. We now come to communication, and the letter of the week this week gets a Fabo Kerrang goodie. Not my words, the words of Kerrang magazine. In 1986, Judas Priest released the classic Turbo album with nine songs on it, but they recorded nine more songs which did not go onto the album. They promised to put them on their next album, but they never did. Where are those songs now? They were mentioned in issue, issue two of Mega Metal Kerrang. Two of those songs were Prisoner of Your Eyes and Red, White and Blue. It has been almost four years since Painkiller and us Priest fans want some new material. So while we're waiting for the new album with new singer, how about releasing this material now? It will satisfy us Priest fans. Adrian Betts from Tamworth. Well, editor says, Judas Priest management have told us that they are definitely no plans to release any of this old material, as they are songs that were considered not up to standard. However, 
we should soon have news of Glenn Tipton's solo album, plus a priest update. A Kerrang cap is on its way to keep you going till then, editor. I'm writing to say how pissed off I am at some so-called rock fans for their utter small-mindedness. I'm referring to the letter in issue 486 from the Sandman, or Sadman. When will people stop slagging Extreme off for no reason? To put on a show such as the Monsters of Rock with only one type of band playing would be stupid and would not be fair to fans who appreciate other styles of rock and metal. The modern music scene is supposed to represent variety, but ignorant dicks like the Sandman come and tell us what music is good. Extreme and Aerosmith are very talented bands because of their ability to make original, diverse music and as Nuno said, to cross over different barriers. This is what music is about, not how heavy a song is or if it's relevant to current trends. The Sandman should realise that tastes vary. If he gave other types of music a listen, he may even like them for what they are, not what they represent. Music is there to be enjoyed by all and not to be argued over. Jerry J from Gwynedd. So the Metal Avenger, Communication 486 thinks therapy shouldn't get coverage in a mag like Kerrang because they're an indie band. Whatever next, ban the Wild Hearts for being a punk band, ban Paradise Lost for being goth, ban Little Angels for being pop, ban Thunder for being a blues band, ban Metallica because they've been in the charts. Come on, get real. Secondly, it may be an idea to listen to a band before criticising them. If therapy are an indie band, then what are Suede? Roger King from Nebworth. Gagging for a shagging. Please, please, beg Grovel, show his satanic majesty, he of the gorgeous, sexy black hair and smouldering evil eyes, none other than deicide's Glenn Benton, who is a complete sex god, er, uh, devil. He can practice his dark and evil rituals on me any time. Satan's sex slave from Harrogate. Tonight I attended the best gig I've ever seen, Poor at the Oval in Norwich. Their Dragline album was easily one of the best albums of 93, along with Pearl Jam's Verses and they definitely deserve to get bigger. Mark Hennessy singing a bit of Pearl Jam's Animal halfway through brand new song Sunflower was fucking smart. Support poor. Errol Scouse from Fetford. I see that Stiff Little Fingers are being advertised as a legendary punk band. Well, I would like to put forward my side of a little publicised story. After I had finished some recording on the new album, I was informed by the manager that I was no longer to be a part of the band. I was given no reason nor has anyone told me anything since. The band are making no attempt to let Stiff Little Fingers fans know that this is not the same band as before. The current SLF is no more than a caricature of a great band. How can a band, consisting of three English members and only one original member, sing songs like Alternative Ulster with any conviction? Bring on the gold lame curtains, the punk cabaret starts here. H Henry Clooney, ex Stiff Little Fingers. Short and Curlies. Paradise Lost, Wolverhampton, Wolfram Hall. You are bloody mind-blowing. Cheers. Can't wait till next time. Kim from Stoke. Ill communication. We now come to a Soundgarden eight-page poster pullout, which is eight pages of Soundgarden posters. Not that exciting. However, there's a Soundgarden competition corner. Gardener's question time. You know all about that special one-off gig that Soundgarden played at London Shepherd's Bush Empire Theatre on March the 12th? Well, the Big Krang has got hold of a bunch of uh, hot garden poop commemorating this legendary ultra-mega-metal event. Courtesy of our old buddies at A&M Records, we're giving away 10 exclusive gig t-shirts. So exclusive, in fact, that only 250 of them have been made. And as if that wasn't enough, we'll also be throwing in two limited edition slabs of Soundgarden vinyl with each shirt. There's the Garden's new album Super Unknown on double yellow vinyl plus an ultra rare promo copy of the new single The Day I Tried To Live which isn't released until April. To stand the chance of winning this top skill Soundgarden swag simply answer the following teaser. 
what was Soundgarden's first album for A&M? Call 0839-401-3388, leave your answer, name and address. We now come to this week's cover stars. A lot of bullshit has been written about Little Angels and it's time to put the record straight. Did they get dropped by Polydor? Is drummer Rich really a heavy metal hooligan? And where do the angels go now? Steve Beebe goes ringside to get the answers. Little Angels fans can be forgiven for thinking their heroes have fallen on hard times. Rumours are rife that the band have been dropped by Polydor after failing to break America. But the band themselves tell a different story. They ain't sprawling against the ropes and groping for their corner. Instead the band are positive that they are embarking on the most productive chapter of their career. The Angels are leaping back into the ring Eubank style and strutting their stuff with renewed confidence. In a pub downstairs from London's Thomas A. Beckett boxing gym, Angels frontman Toby Jepsen, guitarist Bruce Dickinson and bassist Mark Plunkett laugh and joke as they reveal all about the ups and downs of their career. It's a warts and all blow by blow account, a lesson in how to roll with the punches that the rock and roll business can throw your way. It's another busting big K bout, 10 rounds with the Scarborough Sluggers. Little Angels, the name suggested a bunch of mischievous schoolboys drinking lemonade and giggling awkwardly in the company of girls. Not very rock and roll. Had the band opted for a metal, all-macho moniker like Wolfsbane or The Almighty, might they have been taken seriously a lot sooner? Mark, I wouldn't call the name a setback as such. You can look at any number of things in life and say that they prevented you from doing a certain thing. Our name has caused various people to take cheap shots at us, but it's something we've dealt with. Speaking of Wolfsbane, look at where they actually are compared to us. The choice of a macho name obviously wasn't that important. I like the way people have started to refer to us as the Angels. It proves we're not a young band anymore and I think all that negative stuff about us being kids is a thing of the past. A very important thing is learning how to deal with stuff like that, adds Toby. You have to be able to take the ball by the horns and rise above those things. The real issue is not the band's name, but the band's music. Round two. The UK rock press has not always been kind to the Little Angels, but Toby Jepsen does not feel hard done by. We've certainly always tried to do things our own way, regardless of what people say. It's definitely paid off. Mark. The thing is, we never allow things like that to get us down, so we can't really be asked to retaliate. You think of Guns N' Roses, a band that did retaliate, and it looks really weak. People now slag them off because they get, got involved. Little digs from the media would only bother us if we weren't selling out tours and selling loads of albums, but when we're as successful as we are, it seems a bit weak-minded to start whinging. Bruce, we've never bothered to worry about what other people say because we know we're never going to be part of some big fashionable movement anyway. Having said that, if you stick to your guns, you'll always have integrity. There's nothing more embarrassing than bands changing their image and their music just to stay fashionable. I'm not going to name names, but you see it happening all the time. We'll never go out of fashion because we were never fashionable in the first place. Round 3. Little Angels see themselves as a classic British rock band in the tradition of The Who. Fashionable they ain't. Toby. What we do is very much organic and flowing, and like The Who, the live thing is what we do best. Mark. The reason we enjoy being compared to The Who is that they were so relevant and progressive. We want to be relevant. Look at how much the world has changed even in the time since we put out Jan, the Angels' third full-length album which topped the UK charts in 1993. That's not to say we're going to be jumping on the Seattle bandwagon or whatever, but it's always important to look ahead. We've never really found our niche, and in a sense, I hope we never do. Why should someone spend £13 on our next studio album if it's just going to sound like the same as the last one? It's very dangerous to creep into what looks like a safe corner and keep churning out the same things, warns Toby. That's where the Who comparison is helpful. In their records, just as in ours, you can see that their lives influenced the music to a huge degree. Round 4. Incredibly, the Gulf War stopped the Angels' second album in its tracks. When the conflict erupted, Radio 1 refused to play the single Boneyard, and as paranoia mounted, shop ref shops refused to stop the album unless its title was changed from Spitfire. 
The band panicked and the LP became Young Gods. In fairness, that was both a genuine setback and a genuine mistake on our part, admits Mark. We had to do what people said because we weren't of the stature where we could have told them to fuck off. It was a real pain in the ass because two weeks later, the war was over. Spitfire was a far better title than Young Gods and the original artwork was also vastly superior. An exasperated Toby reflects, it's ludicrous to think that people actually feared the Americans were going to be blasting Boneyard out of their tanks as they went into battle. Mark. And of course, once we changed the title to Young Gods, we then got criticised for that. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Round 5. Toby. One of many misconceptions is that we wasted a great amount of time trying to break the US market. We didn't. We never have done. Mark clarifies the situation. Don't pray for me and Young Gods got a limited release in America, but we never played over there to support them. Jam was not released there in any shape or form, and that's part of the reason we've decided to leave Polydor. So I can categorically say that there has been no time wasted trying to break the states. We've never had that option. Round 6. Mark. No, we most certainly have not been dropped. I hate that word. It's so negative and crap and there's nothing, nothing negative and crap about us. Most record deals, including Little Angel's deal with Polydor, have an annual option in which the company chooses whether to keep the band for another album or drop them. Last May, Polydor's option on Little Angels came up and the company decided to pick them up again. We were all set to do a fourth album for them, says Bruce. However, Jam had come out in Britain and had got to number one and there were no plans to release it in America. We didn't like that and by the time they were expecting us to record again, these problems still hadn't been resolved. So the chances were that the exact same thing was going to happen again with the next album. Mark. Polydor have had a number one album and 10 top 40 singles out of us, but they're not prepared to develop us around the world. And we've never allowed anyone to hold us back, musically or otherwise. It's damaging because when people say you've been dropped, the implication is that you've failed. Then you have no choice but to justify yourself by saying how successful you've been. And it's very hard to do that without appearing pompous. Round 7. All these top 40 smashes are on Little Angels, last LP for Polydor. A best of package entitled Little of the Past. We were under no contra contractual obligation to deliver a fourth album, reveals Toby. They would have put it out anyway, so we decided to take the initiative. That way we had control of what was used. Also, this year is Little Angel's 10th anniversary together, so it seemed kind of fitting. In some respects, respects this album is even more important to us than a new studio album, because it's closing this particular chapter. Plus, there's new material on it as well, not just songs people will already have, adds Mark. And there's also ancient stuff like 90 in the Shade, which is otherwise virtually impossible to get hold of. I think people will, will be surprised by the depth of material. It's a great sounding album. It's also a chance for people who've only just got into us because of Jam to find out where we came from. I think it's a very positive move. 8. The Donington Monsters of Rock Metal Fest is traditionally the biggest event on the hard rock calendar. Brick Rockers, Thunder and The Almighty have both made a big impact at Donington, yet surprisingly, Little Angels have never appeared there. Why? I don't think we've ever needed Donington to prove ourselves, shrugs Mark. Besides, we've done more than enough festival shows in this country and in Europe. Look how well we went down with Bon Jovi at Milton Keynes Bowl last year. Donington is obviously a very important event and I'm sure we'll play there eventually. Surely the whole idea of a festival like Donington is to bring bands like Sepultura and Little Angels onto the bill. It may well be, says Toby, but I don't think the fans see it as being any more important than any similar festival. We're certainly knock, not knocking Donington, and naturally we'd love to play there at some point, but we just don't regard an appearance as the be-all and end-all. Round 9. The Angels have undergone just two lineup changes in 10 years after drummer Dave Hopper left the band way back when. They were hit below the belt when his replacement, Michael Lee, quit to join the cult. They recovered well and now have a hard hitter of a drummer in Mark Rich Richardson. 
When Michael quit, it didn't hold us back at all, Plunkett bristles. It certainly annoyed us, as it would any band, to lose a drummer in such a shitty way. Basically, he went behind our backs. Luckily, in came Rich, and suddenly the band has a whole new freshness. Furthermore, Rich has been our friend for way longer than Michael ever was, and it feels like he's been with us since day one. We'd never knock Michael's drumming because he's excellent, but there are ways of going about things and he just didn't have the bottle. You wouldn't want to go a couple of rounds with Rich. During the band's last tour, a businessman in Preston found out the hard way when he sustained a broken nose from the Scarborough Hardman. Assault charges were level at Rich, but were later dropped. Says Toby, It happened after a gig in Preston, and we'd gone back to the hotel with some friends for a few drinks in the bar. There were a group of businessmen present who obviously took exception to us being there. Bruce takes up the story. Then Jimmy Dickinson, Bruce's bro and Little Angel's keyboard player starts taking offence and gets up. One of them looks ready to smack him, so Rich, who's a bit handy in such matters, legs it across the room and busts this bloke's nose. When the police arrive, Rich was arrested, Toby continues. Mark, it's all blown over now, but we were a bit worried at first as Rich has a minor offence on his record already. He can be a bit of a lad, can Rich? Round 10. The Angels had a riotous 93. Jam hit number 1. Womankind became the band's biggest hit single. They toured with Van Halen, guested with Bon Jovi at Milton Keynes and played two sellout UK tours. 1994 season rocking and rolling on and with a raw hunger for a new deal. It's time for Little Angels to deliver the killer punch. Get in the ring, motherfuckers. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. Records now, and we begin this week with The Obsessed with their album The Church Within, which gets 4Ks, and this review is by Gordon Goldstein. Anger, woe, pity. No one evokes him in a single utterance better than the obsessed chief doomsayer Scott Wino Weinrich. That's the real kick to the Washington DC born LA transplanted obsessed. Bad feelings and electric passions poured onto, poured onto of one another like concrete. Oh that is a bad sentence Kerrang. Bad feelings and electric passions poured onto of one another like concrete. Yeah, that, that's terrible. I'll sack the copy editor. Long occult fixture, Wino and crew's first package of corporate slabbage establishes them as more than another pack of whelps on bent knee at the Black Sabbath throne. Why, you ask, are they such a name check item not only with Lee Dorian and his lot, but the likes of Fagazi or Hank Rollins? Well, the obsessed jumble bits of anything good about the 70s. Sabbath, Purple, Lemmy, the MC5, Brown Acid. And pump it up with a steady surfeit of anger. It's no coincidence that the sirens at the beginning of Streetside are an echo of the Sam's classic War Pigs. When Wino barks, fuck this world, amidst the fast and furious roar of a world apart, it's a pure kick out the jams moment. Steeped in 20 years of working man's aggro with nothing particularly retro about it at all. In fact, The Church Within does feel like a bit of a retrospective, reprising a few old demo tracks that were circulating before Weinrich did a stint with St. Vitus. Still, the early tracks in question, namely To Protect and Serve and Neat Brigade, sound every bit as vital alongside the riffs and poignant gloom of touch of everything. What separates the obsessed from their woe-begotten inspirees is a sense of gusto about it all. Streamlines lifting into unsuspecting ears like vintage motorhead, straight down to the boogie-woogie guitar break with Wino sounding more like a refugee from cult biker film Easy Rider than a morbidly-minded crypt defiler. No, they don't make records like this anymore. The obsessed lumber on alone, baneful, begotten and beautifully born too late. The next review is by Various, and the album is titled The John Peel Sub Pop Sessions. This review gets 2Ks and is reviewed by Paul Brannigan. 
The phrase scraping the bottom of the barrel might have been invented for albums such as this. Okay, so Strange Fruit couldn't use anything by Nirvana for legal reasons, but this compilation doesn't even come close to capturing the exuberant spirit and wayward genius of Seattle's world-conquering record label. Any one of Sub Pop's own compilation albums would put this collection to shame. Quintessential slackers Mudhoney open up proceedings with the typically sloppy fuzzy drone of By Her Own Hand, followed by their garage classic Here Comes Sickness, and a cover of brick punk guru Billy Childish's You Make Me Die. Even on autopilot, Mudhoney easily outshine their label mates here. Next, Tad offer up the short and sweet Helot and Seaweed Steaming to Sit in Blast, and Jonathan Richmond's She Cracked, energetic enough but hardly essential. From here things go further downhill with two tracks from the unremarkable Pond and three tracks from Washington DC jangly indie popsters Velocity Girl, which are about as appealing as a dinner date with Jane Torville. Codeine complete the album on a high note with the poignant lament Broken Hearted Wine, injecting a burst of sensitivity far beyond the grasp of your favourite sweaty long hairs. This is a disappointing representation of an excellent record label. The sub pop roster still includes many fine bands but they're better heard elsewhere. Go buy the new Soundgarden album instead. And the last review this week is by the Kings of Metal, Man of War, and their album is titled Best of Man of War, The Hell of Steel. This album gets 1K and is reviewed by Dave Reynolds. Death to Force Compilation Albums. If you're among the army of the immortals, then there is no need for you to waste any hard-earned blood money on this piece of trash. Manawad themselves had nothing to do with it and find the artwork that disgraces the cover ridiculous beyond belief. And as for the title, The Hell of Steel, Mighty Warriors look to Valhalla, not Hell, when they die. Manawar recorded three albums for Atlantic before signing to Geffen last year. So what happens? Atlantic cash in, flogging a CD that features four tracks from 87's Fighting the World Opus, five from 88's Kings of Metal, including the bizarre choice of the spoken word Warrior's Prayer, four from 92's Triumph of Steel, plus the German version of Heart of Steel, Hers aus Stahl. Musically, this set of tunes is hard to fault, but the 1k rating here is to register my disgust at the release of this album. Normally, Man of War would be, up, be beyond mere 1k ratings. Metal charts now, and the number one album this week is Far Beyond Driven by Pantera. Chaos AD is still number one in the indie metal chart, although we have two new entries, number three Point Blank Nail Bomb and number four from now on Glenn Hughes. The number one single this week is Dry County by Bon Jovi. And the readers chart this week is a melodic rock-filled readers chart has been sent in uh, by Lindsay McBain from Glasgow, whose antenna is most definitely raised by the bearded wonders in ZZ Top. God help him if Lindsay ever gets a mitts on him. Lindsay's chart this week is number one, Forever Free Wasp. Number two, Unskinny Bot by Poison. Three, Bloodstone Judas Priest. Four, Hole in the Sky Saxon. Five, Final Countdown Europe. Six, Rough Boy ZZ Top. Seven, November Rain Guns N' Roses. 8 More Than Words Extreme, 9 She's My Machine, David Lee Roth, and 10 Action by Def Leppard. We now move on to singles. A cornucopia of possibilities await this week's single reviewer. Oblivion, Temptation, Sex, uh, Mother, Jason Arnop bravely faces up to the latest batch of Silver Frisbee come CD single releases. The first release this week is Godflesh Merciless on Earache. Having been off the boil and into the realms of masturbation for some time, it's good to hear Godflesh sounding more like their street cleaner heyday, but ultimately only sounding like it. Merciless has little real fire left. 
Only misery remains. Where experimentation wants triumph, Justin Broderick must be a great bloke with whom to chat about the inevitability of death. The next single is 10 Miles High by Little Angels on Polydor. A straight rip of humble pies, I don't need no doctor, leads into a fairly strong refrain before the inevitable soaring chorus, tailor made to be repeated ad infinitum. Regurgitation really is the name of the game here, but Little Angels have once again produced some perfectly competent, accessible goods with the guitar volume just so. Diplomacy rules, doesn't it? Next single is Mother by Danzig on American. Ignoring the fact that you keep expecting Glenn Danzig to adopt a slurred Adrian as his vocal motif, Mother is the archetypal, simple, brilliantly effective runk song. It's up there with the cult's Lil Devil indeed and the 94 version has a little more balls than the original from the Danzig debut all those years ago. It might even have received single of the week if the Black Fonz had a kernel of an embryo of a seed of a sense of humour. Oblivion by Terrorvision on Total Vegas. Pop Oblivion to be precise, but not bludgeon pop as practiced by therapy. This is literally do-what pop with more corn than a thousand bowls of Kellogg's and played with that cheeky George Formby grin adorning singer Tony Wright's face. Most metalers will despise it, as they will the exclusive track for What Do You Do That For? But the former is grudgingly infectious and the latter is instant fun, much like the earlier tea dance. The other B-sides include the original demo version of Oblivion, plus a contribution from top rock Banshee's Die Cheerleader, who've recorded an amphetamine cover of the Vision's Problem Solved in Blistering Style. A nice idea which others could follow. The Wild Hearts doing Therapy Screamager, the Manics trying Sucker Punch, Skin doing anything with personality. And single of the week this week is March of the Pigs by Nine Inch Nails on Island. CD number one of the eventual double pack, doesn't your wallet just love these things, opens with the supposed clean version of Pigs, which is no cleaner than the walls of your local abattoir. A magnificently scathing comeback from the plucky young psycho Trent Reznor. It powers along like Wish, but tempers itself with some delightful piano taps. It's backed with the seven minute All the Pigs all lined up, which is a very metal extension of the title bruiser. Plus the somewhat inconsequential 63 seconds of a violent fluid and the nasty big man with a big gun from the Downward Spiral album. Shoot, 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 shoot. Me and my fucking gun. Breaks the ice at parties. Kerrang Classifieds now where you can sell any old tap, including yourself. And we begin with bands available. Exceptional band seeks exceptional management. 0452 720 704. Under special notices, Kerrang have been very arsy this week and they have printed the advert exactly as it was written. Bands wanted Jabai Major Magiment. Send demos to Tower Music, Tower View, Hillcrest Ave, Silsdon, BD20, 9NJ. Under personal this week, we have Mail30, Own House, Solvent. <laughs> I love that he tells, <laughs> tells, he's telling prospective women that he's solvent. What a guy, sorry. Male 30, own house, solvent, long hair, good sense of humour, seeks attractive female for relationship, photo if possible, Colchester, box number K6126. I made a mention, oh, it was probably a few weeks ago now, about I wonder if anyone ever replied to these personal ads or if anyone ever, you know, met up with someone, anything happened. Well, Joe, JGW, glad I wrote, love JHB. <gasps> Does that mean someone met in the personal adverts in Kerrang? I love it. I'd love to know more. Uh, I wish there was a way for me to find out like more about this stuff. If anyone out there listening 
knows who Joe JGW or JHBR, please, please, please get in contact and let me know. I I would do anything to find out what happened there. I just think it's amazing. Anyway, that concludes this week's episode of the podcast. As always, I've been your host, Stephen. Thank you so much for listening. And in next week's episode, we have, is this the hardest man in metal? Question mark with a, uh, a silhouette. And it's quite clearly, clearly Henry Rollins. I mean, it's just so obvious that it's him. Also, black metal murder verdict. Ooh. Plus, Soundgarden, Motley Crue, Cheap Trick, Melvin's Skin, and a classic Kiss pullout. That is one not to miss. If I don't get my copy of Crane 489, I will get Little Angel's man Toby Jepsen to come round and stick you with his not-so-big right. You never know, it might still hurt. As always, thank you for listening. I think I already said that. I'm saying it again. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, as always, if you want to get in contact, you can email us at kerangbackissues at gmail.com. You can get us through Twitter at um, kerangpod and you can get us on Instagram at kerangbackissues. Yep, all the good stuff. Thank you, as always. I'm going to keep saying thank you, apparently. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. See you next week. Bye, thank you, bye.